You're listening to Tasting Together with Maroki Tong and Andre Cruz. It's no longer Saturday, nor is it 5 p.m., unless you happen to be magically listening to this at 5 p.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> I have to keep reminding myself not to say, like, you're listening together on da 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 station that I shall no longer mention because we are now a podcast. We are now a podcast. We've got some exciting stuff coming up this week. Um, got part two of our conversation with Joaquin Hidalgo about Wines of Argentina as part of our, our sponsored partnership. Once again, thanks to Wines of Argentina for helping us get this little project off the ground. Running a podcast isn't yeah. expensive, but there are some bills that go with getting it uh, set up. So thank you for that. Appreciate it greatly. And I feel like um, fall is finally here. The temperature yes. has really taken a drop. I have. I'm, I'm still really wearing shorts, glad. though. I am still oh, wearing shorts. Of course you're wearing shorts. Well, I have upgraded to the hoodie and the long pants life. Oh, I do hoodie and shorts. I think that's sort of like if, you know, denim on denim on denim, like the jean jacket with a denim shirt and, and jeans is the Canadian tuxedo. I am going to take ownership of uh, the bunny hug and the shorts as the prairie tuxedo. <laughs> well, I'll take it. I'm, um, I will say from a completely, I don't know, self-serving perspective, I guess for me, I don't need to be shaving my legs as often anymore. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. And uh, that's just to say, people can choose to shave their legs or not shave their legs. You are all beautiful, whether you choose to remove your body hair or not. For me, I do remove my body hair, but in the winter, I absolutely do not because all you see are my pants anyway. Nothing like a little extra warmth. I mean, I'm here <laughs> yes. for it. Speaking of the signs of fall, uh, one of the signs of fall, I know it's almost become a trope. Um, and I know this is a new podcast, but or meme. it's sort of like, I think we're, we're sort of legally obligated to talk about it, but... You know, I've seen through my entire media career, you know, the rise of the influence of pumpkin spice. And it's just like, now we've got pumpkin spice lattes. I think this year it started to roll around in August, like late August is when Starbucks started the promo. And just the whole like, you know, it's 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 one of the nice things because it's not a serious debate. Like it's a fun debate to have about whether you're pro or against pumpkin spice, whether it's too early or you need to wait for October. Um, some people get mad, though. Like, yes. I've seen some people genuinely get upset. It's like the people who say, like, oh, you know, I'm seeing Christmas decorations or Christmas items out for sale already. How dare you? We haven't even passed Halloween yet, right? Like, some people get really, really worked up when pumpkin spice rolls around, which I guess for me, I'm always wondering why it's as polarizing. Because yeah. there's a part of me that understands... If some if Christmas decorations are being sold in August, why you feel like you're it's kind of you know thinking a little too far ahead and not celebrating what's immediately ahead of us. Well, right? I got it's a theory. Like, I oh, have like, a, don't think too far. But I have a theory. Spice, like end I, of August, you're rolling into fall. Yeah, I also but, really like pumpkin. Oh, uh, I okay. I I still feel that like thinking about fall at the end of August is a little too soon. But you know, once again, this is someone who's wearing shorts in October. Um, I do think that one of the problems with pumpkin spice is it's just that whole idea of like holding on to summer for dear life. And I mean, let's face it, the summer that we just had was not one of the warmest, hottest, sunniest, clearest summers that we had. So the whole idea of admitting that it's over a little too soon stings a bit. I think that mm -hmm. is why there's a bit of the hate for it. But um, as you, Do you as know what I always thought, Okay, I what want to hear got, what, what you, you think first. Okay, well, I, actually, oh, it's, I was... it, it's not—it's it's not, it's not what I think. It's um, 
I was going to say, I do a little bit of, of PR. I've done some media relations. I do a little bit of, of that like in my, in my civilian life when I'm not talking about food and wine. And I think pumpkin spice suffers from an image problem. And I am here to defend and fix pumpkin spice for everyone so you can enjoy it year-round without the controversy. Okay. And uh, what's your proposal for that? Okay. So when you're doing a lot of Chinese cooking and especially Chinese Canadian cooking, you can pick up something that is called Asian or Chinese five spice, right? Yes. So I think we just need to start calling pumpkin spice, Caucasian five spice. (laughs) You know what? I'm kind of here for it, except like, I feel like everyone would be really confused because I would assume (laughs) that white people know what five spice is. Oh, okay. I, you know what? I think, I think, I think, you know what? This is the thing though. I, I think more people know what five spice is. And this is one of the things where, as I'm getting more serious about learning about Chinese cooking, Korean cooking, Vietnamese cooking, you know, I can distinguish between anise and, um, oh, geez, anise and fennel and a lot of those other spices that are included in the five spice mix. But when you take a look, look at a lot of like, just basic stir fry recipes it's kind of used as a catch-all for all chinese cooking and and all i guess all asian cooking in general which is not necessarily a a good or a bad thing like it makes things easy and like a lot of those spices are staples in that type of cooking you know that that pumpkin spice mix is something that is in a lot of stuff year-round like the stuff that ends up in in a pumpkin pie, cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, uh, clove. clove. I think you know Ginger. maybe we need to call it something a little more attractive, like harvest spice. Okay, but we're still talking about fall then. Oh, you know what? That actually might might uh, that might like soften the blow. That might soften the blow a little bit because you like I there's thought, just something about the yeah. mental picture. Like like pumpkin pie season starts this week. You and I like I had a pumpkin pie that I made from scratch. Okay, who are we kidding? I have a baby. I worked like a crazy person this week. Harvest started in Niagara. My wife made the pumpkin pie. I made the pumpkin pie filling <laughs> and she put it together. But yeah, well, it's just something I, about like like yeah. like pumpkin pie like being the beginning of fall. See, what I always thought the reason why people got all worked up about pumpkin pie spice or pumpkin spice is because people didn't like pumpkin. Because I always remember I love pumpkin pie. Me too. So the idea of pumpkin pie season like pumpkin spice beer like i'm all for that all you be all you beer people don't at me with your anti pumpkin spice <laughs> beer i'm always looking for the best one and no they're not always good ones but i'm always on the search for a great pumpkin spice beer but i love pumpkin pie and one thing i've learned over the years in making pumpkin pie every year is that not everyone likes pumpkin pie yes. and that was maybe something that i realized maybe is why people get worked up because if you don't like pumpkin the idea of pumpkin spice and the spice has nothing to do with pumpkins in any way, right? It's like you said, it's a medley of spices that can be used in various forms of yep. cooking um, and baking. Then maybe we should just rebrand it to harvest spice or just something, I don't know, like just something a little <laughs> bit warmer, a little bit away from the pumpkin land and people would maybe adjust to it a little bit better. All right. So so, so North American five spice is, is something you're not on, completely on board with. I don't know. I would find it funny, but we'll see if uh, other people find it funny or maybe they'll just like, 
I, it's that whole like white people spicy. We don't want <laughs> 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 causing another PR problem for for pumpkin spice, Andre. But uh, maybe we should roll. You talked a little bit about Harvest yes. in Niagara, and I feel like that's <laughs> something that we should definitely uh, touch base on. So I am but not. I am not looking for sympathy when we get into this, but this week so kind of sucked a little bit for Andre. Um, when you're running a wine business on the side of your day job, it is really hard this time of year because when you have a challenging vintage like this, like, uh, I guess, you know, what? I, could, I should go and say this. What is it like in Niagara this year? Well, we're not dealing with the gong show that was 2021 where it started raining and didn't stop. But the fact that we've had intermittent rain on and off, like pretty much once a week for, you know, the past how many weeks has definitely had an impact on the crop yields as well as the quality of the fruit. So one of the things uh, I noticed um, uh, apparently from talking to a few other grape growers is that ripening seems to be taking longer this year. And it might be partially also due to the fact that August was really cool. Yeah. And that, you know, it opened up to a pretty warm fall, but that means that harvest is happening later than normal. And I was sort of on deck to try and help out a few growers pick grapes. And the times that we had set ended up not happening. They ended up being delayed at least a week or two. And maybe to, you know, kind of touching on your point of having a day job and working wine on the side. Yeah. It's always a stark reminder that when you work in agriculture, uh, you don't like plan and schedule around agriculture. Agriculture no, you don't. plans around you. You yes. literally have to do when nature calls. You go, or your grapes are um hella dead. On the ground yeah, I mean that's it. Mold, like, or they end up rotting on the vine. That's it. So that's that's happen. that's the big thing that happens that the, at this time of year with uh like it's challenging vintage. So like you're correct. We harvested um our Pinot Noir on October third. We generally harvest it Pinot Noir on October twenty fifth, twenty sixth. Um, so oh, that's we're, early. Then. No, it's a it's a like a full week late, a full week late. So like you we said October third. Oh, sorry, I meant to say September twenty fifth, September twenty fifth, September twenty sixth. Sorry, we usually harvest yeah, like, Pinot Noir in September. It's it's pushed to October third, and the thing is, we've also typically harvested Chardonnay in that last week of October, last week of September, first week of October. And the day that we're recording this on October 9th, um, the Chardonnay is still hanging. And I just took a look. Uh, Morgan Juniper, who's the winemaker at 16 Mile and the Farm, has also made a comment that she's still waiting for Chardonnay to come off. I know a couple people have harvested. And I mean, that's the thing about when you want fruit to ripen. And this is why you know we've talked on, on the radio show before about having the right grapes planted in the right place in Ontario. Like there's certain grapes that are a little bit more forgiving if they're maybe not super duper perfect like 24 carat like oh my god super yummy ripe things like cabernet franc chardonnay and pinot noir can all be maybe a little bit underripe and still deliver some really delicious wines i mean the goal is obviously to ripen them but when you're dealing with fruit rotting on the vine you can't wait for every berry to be ripe to make sure that your viticulture is financially viable yeah. And I mean, this is one of those things that I always want our listeners to who are curious about wine, but maybe only really see wine in the bottle and never think about the farm to table process to just understand that like it starts on the vine yep. and there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining the vine and a lot of kind of conditions that can happen year over year that can uh, change how uh, like affect what goes into the final bottle. And obviously when you have a cool summer and a warmer fall, 
um, or, you know, like, or raining conditions, you're going to lower, like, as you said, you're going to lower the amount of viable crop. Um, the grapes might have, may not reach a certain kind of ripeness. They may choose to harvest early in order to save the crop so that you don't lose what's on the vine. Um, because obviously the later you wait, you also risk frost happening. And then when frost happens, you say bye bye to a lot of the. Well, I mean, that's it is, is like we're like up to 10. 10 to 14 days behind for some varieties and this is one where i've been critical like tongue-in-cheek about things like merlot and cabernet sauvignon in the province and i know there are some people who are really big fans of ontario cab sauve and you know the the journalist in me the wine lover in me and the wine business owner in me will fully admit that in years like 2016 and 2020 cabernet sauvignon from ontario is a very delicious grape to work with but as a business owner and as a farmer in a year like this, like thankfully working with Pinot Noir, Chardonnay and Gamay, we haven't had to worry about an early frost, you know, certainly at this point of the year. But if if I'm working with Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, you're probably feeling a little nervous at this time of year already. Yeah, so I'll say if you're um, going to do any fall visits to wineries in the next couple of weeks, and if you see a winemaker or cellar hand walk around, um, be really kind to them, be really nice to them. They're probably not <laughs> sleeping very much right now. There's a lot of wine memes out there right now, usually of like, uh, what's the one? It's like the really pristine fox, and it's like, uh, it was like a winemaker before harvest, and it's like wine the winemaker after, after harvest. harvest and like yeah. The, yeah, and it's like all frazzled because... Um, they're going through a lot right now, so well, treat see, them it's, it's, very kindly. And if you ever want to learn, there's a few wineries out there that sometimes allow the public to go and pick with them. And, you, you know, you're probably going to get the lovely tourist experience. <laughs> but as someone who has hauled many uh, cartons of grapes out of vineyards, it is toiling hard work. Or shamelessly slide into my DMs. The ADX Wine Company is still waiting to harvest Chardonnay and will be hopefully assembling a crew if the... The clear weather, it's definitely cooled off, but the clear weather holding on, I think, would be something we would really welcome. And, you know, just one last thing about Harvest in Niagara is, you know, for a lot of people who think you go, you pick grapes, it ends up in the cellar, and then two years later, you get to taste the deliciousness that goes with it. <laughs> one of the reasons why the winemakers are frazzled is it's like 18, sometimes 20-hour days, because when you harvest fruit under these conditions where the fruit is rotting on the vine, something a lot of people don't know is every bunch of grapes at the high quality wineries are being hand sorted to make sure that you eliminate as much rot as possible from them. And it is a very time consuming process. As I learned this week on Wednesday, when I went and hand sorted our Pinot Noir for um, uh, what will be the next version of rough Pinot Noir. We're only making three barrels and it took six hours to sort fruit for three barrels of, of Pinot Noir. Yep. Basically, if you're buying a high quality wine and premium wine, most of the time, there's a lot of labor that you never see before it hits that bottle. And then it's sold for $20. And then uh, somehow there's a margin on there that they're supposed to make. So support your local wineries, folks. Rolling into South America, they are not doing any harvesting in Argentina right now. No, those people, I was going to say jerks, but they're not jerks. They're lovely people. <laughs> Uh, they're dealing with spring right now as we're heading into fall. I just, I really love summer. We didn't get enough summer here and I'm, you know, I just need to, I just need to find a way to go to the Southern Hemisphere and extend summer. Anyways. Yeah, they're probably enjoying some really great times and we're going to be chatting with Joaquin Hidalgo 
uh, who is a wine expert and journalist and apparently also a winemaker because he has a winemaking degree. I only learned this fair. Like I reviewed his biography again. And I was like, this man knows everything in and out about wine from an academic context and hands-on context, doesn't he? Yeah, we certainly learned a lot. And, uh, you know, here we go. Andre, I'm really excited to talk about this segment because it's funny. Um, I was thinking about it, rolling into this podcast episode and being like, <laughs> oh, I, you know, I want to talk about like fuller bodied reds, but then we've had in pretty warm fall. <laughs> I felt like that we weren't relevant, but it, um, at the, by the time the show airs, apparently it's going to be all rainy and cold again. So there we go. We get our comforting <laughs> reds back. <laughs> Thanks I've, to the weather, fall will truly be here at last. I've taken the advantage to barbecue every day that the sun's been warm. And also it's been really nice for what's happening in Niagara the day we're recording this, which is October 3rd. Um, I'm actually harvesting Pinot Noir for Rosé this morning. Uh, I'm not there because we machine harvest our, our Pinot Noir for Rosé. Just It's a way to save cost and save a little bit of time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think you've tasted when pigs fly enough times to know that we're not sacrificing quality for the sake of a machine. No, and I think it's one of those mis- myths that I think is important to demystify that just because something is machine harvested doesn't necessarily mean that the quality suffers. And in some ways, you know, grape like Pinot Noir, where when it's ready, it's ready. And if you do oh, not yeah. have the manpower <laughs> to go out and harvest it, it's either it's a matter of sometimes you're going to get the harvest or you don't. And the machine certainly helps with that. And the machines are a lot more gentle than they used to be. A hundred percent. Now, we recently spoke with Joaquin Hidalgo, a wine journalist, an expert on Argentinian wine. And we went like that was a deep dive it's a nice thing about no longer being constrained by terrestrial radio is like we got to have a good 20 minute conversation but apparently joaquin you liked talking to us so much that you decided to come back for round two (laughs) yes 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 i still have things to say (laughs) and i think it's great i actually went and you know re-listened to the podcast myself several times and Uh, Even I was picking up a lot of information that I missed the first time, which sometimes happens when you're asking questions, you know, you're in the heat of the moment. And, um, you know, I've partnered with Wines of Argentina several times for certain activations over the last couple of years. And every single time I still learn something new. So Joaquin, we're really excited for you to join and talk to us again. And today, I think I want to dive right into the the concept of like terroir, because it's such a, you know, it's such a buzzword in wine. Everyone's always like, terroir, I taste the terroir. And there's a lot of, you know, terroir when it comes to wine. But I think there's something actually really special about Argentina's terroir. And I want you to share with us, like, what makes it stand out from your words. I have all my opinions, but I'm not even going to try and, like, put my own spin on it today. I'm going to just hand it right off to you. What makes Argentina's terroir so special? Uh, well, that's a very tough and long uh, answering <laughs> question, but I'll do my best. Uh, try to think that Argentina can can uh, hold the um, complete world map just in a very tiny area. And that's because, the, I mean, the complete world wine map in a very tiny area. And that's because uh, we plant vines in altitude places, you know, where the altitude makes their magic also with the the soil's conditions. So try to think that 
just driving your car from uh, the bottom of Uco Valley in, in, in Mendoza to the upper part of it, uh, it will take you as much as 15 or 20 minutes and you will write the whole map of Europe from, uh, for example, Humilla in Spain to Champagne in France. And it's only going to be a drive. Uh, so th that's a tricky part on Argentina when you think that Argentina is a complete uh, one country because several countries can fit in one area in terms of wine uh, terroirs. So whenever you realize about this condition and we are only speaking about Valle de Uco here, but it applies to every part in Argentina, you will realize that uh, you have to be careful and you have to, to pay attention to every detail when you see a, a label because it helps you to understand what sort of uh, style can be achieved there. Just pay attention only to Malbec. Let's just focus on Malbec and uh, I will show you big difference. For example, Malbec from... Uh, from a warm area in Mendoza, let's say like uh, Humillas in terms of Spain, uh, would be a flat wine with a light color and just, you know, like overripe or, or marmalite aromas. And uh, then you have the lean, very skeletal uh, uh, Malbec, like, like a Pinot Noir, for example, which, which can be very sharpened and, and chalky on the palate. And it would be, you know, like very... A tout wine, and both are labeled as Malbec. Uh, so whenever it comes to to terroir in Argentina, uh, all I mean every several differences might be attended if you are uh, searching for a specific uh, wine style. So that's uh, the key to understand <laughs> today Argentina, and and producers are working in in that sense, developing you know precise tools and and and. Uh, limited uh, their own lands to to create specific GIs. So today it's a it's a boast on on those conditions uh, about terroir. But you have to always think that every country in the world can suit in a very tiny area of only, for example, Mendoza, and that will give you uh, a big advice about what you can find in Argentina. I really mm -hmm. love that. I love that you brought it back to Mendoza as well because. I mean, your answer was sort of like such a, a, a big picture answer. Like, how do you sum up an entire country's um, terroir in, in one answer? And I, I think, you know, I guess it, it is, I guess maybe, uh, not. Yeah, you know, we'll call it a problem. We'll call it a problem is that Argentina is the victim of its own success is when a lot of people think of Argentinian wine, they are thinking of Malbec. They are thinking of Mendoza, which has been one of the great things, Maroki, about having a chance to taste through the Pinot Gris tasting the Chardonnay, tasting Cabernet Sauvignon as well to, to get past that. Um, I, a question I want to want to ask you, because Maroke and I have, have dove deep on this. We were provided samples to taste through the wine to prepare for the interview, but Maroke, you and I actually dipped into our own personal collection because we do enjoy having Argentinian wines on hand. I opened up the Bramare Vignacobos Malbec, which is a mid-tier, runs about $45, and you offered an... Idad Moderna Alter Uco Joaquim, how, I'm, I'm, can you help me with the pronunciations? I made a bad job yes, on both of those. No the exact word is Bramare. It sounds like that in Spanish. Uh, Uco Valle Malbec. Uh, and then you had Edad Moderna, like will be like uh, modern age in English. 
Edad Moderna, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find, uh, I couldn't hear the last word, but it's uh, Altar, Altar Uko. Altar Uko, yeah, that's the producer, yeah, for sure. Okay, so what was really interesting about tasting these wines side by side was the Bramare was a really, I, I, in my mind, what a traditional Argentinian Malbec that, and a, a Mendoza Malbec. I know you said uh, Uko, it's it's Uko Valley or Uko, but. Um, you know, with a lot of oak influence, uh, quite a bit of tannin, like really cocoa, and the um, Alter Uco was an unoaked one. And the question I have is, like, we're starting to see globally this movement to pull back on oak. Um, you know, we're starting to see it in Burgundy. I'm starting to see it in uh, Cote du Rhone. Do we, are we seeing like a, a, a pull back from, I guess, the Robert Parkerization of wines, which was really ripe, really over-extracted, in my opinion. I mean, a lot of people really love those wines and like really juicy wines and just letting the fruit more speak for itself. Sorry for the really long question. Yes. Um, sorry, maybe I will answer your question just in a minute, but maybe I misunderstood the Bramari. I said that it was Ukobali, but maybe it was not that one. Huh? Sorry, I just misunderstood that. It could be also Lujan de Cuyo. I just imagine it was Lujan de Cuyo because I thought about that. But let's focus on your on your question because it's better. Um, uh, yes, of course. Actually, there is a very interesting movement in 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 Argentina today, um, which is on the seek of more purity on the wines, and uh, that is uh, you know like a shift in terms of wine styles because whenever you are in a sunny place like Mendoza can be or Salta that we didn't mention uh, a couple of minutes ago. Or even Patagonia, where where the sunlights can be very very uh, scorching the grapes. Uh, it depends on, on on the vineyard and many other stuff. Whenever it comes to sunlight, uh, it doesn't very well with the fruit in those styles. It used to be like that when you overripe the grapes and you uh, you see you know like opulent styles. But if you just search for the perfect uh, ripening point of each varietal, sunlight can be very tricky in terms of how it match with the oak. So uh, since 2010 or 12, it, it depends which, which is the, the, the cutting line here. Uh, some producers, and today a lot of them, are working on, you know, like finding, finding the most precise idea of each wine attached to its terroir. And if you are looking for purity, you do not need to express the wood as, as a value on the wine. And if you are seeking purity again, over-ripening every grape will be like losing the herd of the wine. So if you keep these three things in mind, that you have the sunlight and, and you have the purity and you have the overdone wines with oak, finally, the movement that you will you will get in the in the in the shelves uh, of Argentina wines today is like uh, a shift into more uh, clear wines that can speak better than uh, of its terroir, and all these uh, movements are uh, you know impacting or, or or imparting new new flavors on on Argentinian wines, and that's why you find these two very different wines when you taste it. Bramare, it's uh, it is a um, indirect line of uh, of the ripe process of of the 2010 for example wines in which the opulency of the grape is a big part of the style 
And then you have Edad Moderna, which is the opposite. Uh, it's more lean and refreshing, and both are uh, Malbecs from Mendoza. So as I explained at the very beginning, today you have to focus more in the place and in the producer to find uh, what you are looking for than the whole Argentina. Argentina is very, it's a very big country in many senses. And just to, to draw a line, but if you think on the northern area of Argentina, like, for example, Valles Calchaquíes, or in the head of Patagonia, like Capitán Sarmiento, you will have to drive or you will cross the whole country as if you were going from Morocco, for example, to Edinburgh in in the United Kingdom. So it's a very large country in terms of winemaking. So going into precise terroir will give you a better idea of what sort of uh, styles uh, would you, I mean, are you going to have? And that's the the magic uh, today in Argentina, I think. I mean, that's my opinion. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it's actually interesting that you brought up um, purity of fruit and sunlight a lot because yeah. sunlight is definitely something I've been um, focusing a lot when kind of under trying to understand terroir a little bit in Argentina, but specific, specifically like sunlight from higher altitude. Because yeah. I know speaking of the high, like high altitude wines, I, you know, I read a lot about grapes and a lot about wines. You know, they always talk about, oh, this wine was grown at elevation, but it was one of those things that I realized that when they talk about elevation in Argentina, a lot of the times it's substantially higher than a lot of other regions that, um, you know, that other wines tout that their wines are grown at elevation. And I realized the impact of sunlight um, when grown at elevation. I think luminosity was the first word that was ever thrown out um, when studying wines of Argentina. And I think that also there's also a, like a way that the fruit um, expresses itself when grown at high altitude and grown in proximity to sunlight. So I, why is high altitude so important in such a signature to Argentinian wine? Um, I, like I said, I, I just throw some words out there like luminosity. I remember talking, realizing that not only does the high altitude, I guess, like add, has a cooler climate factor. It can help keep the freshness of the grape, but that proximity to the sun actually truly does impact the grape in some way, right? Yeah, absolutely true. Um, let's keep two figures in mind. Whenever you go on, on a terrain, you know, 150 meters, more or less, it's, it's an average. The um, average temperature will drop one Celsius degrees, which means that if you are, you know, at the sea level, it would be a warm area. But if you are at 1500 meters, it would be a very chill one. Uh, so that's the key to understand why Mendoza and specifically, I mean, why Argentina and mainly Mendoza, but also in the northern terrain, it happens the same. Uh, every producer seeks the altitude uh, in order to find, you know, like uh, a cooler climate conditions. But the opposite uh, of that uh, search is that you are going to fight with sunlight. Uh, you said luminosity, and uh, this is the second figure. To keep you to keep in mind, whenever you rise one thousand meters in 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 each terrain at our latitudes, uh, you will uh, you know uh, rise more or less twelve to th- um, twelve to thirteen percent the average of uh, radiation. Uh, so if you are at I don't know fifteen hundred meters or uh, if you are at three thousand. Uh, it would change dramatically the intense the intensity of those radiation that radiation. So finally, 
you have to to manage the vineyard in in a very different way because uh, although you are in a very cold climate like Champagne, for example, uh, and you are in Mendoza, the sun would be would scorch the grape if you do not protect it. So uh, Argentina has developed lots of tools in terms of vineyard management to um, to find the better balance of those high altitude grapes. And today I can tell you. Uh, there is uh, a very deep knowledge on how to handle these conditions. And that's why you will find more precise wines in these high-altitude terrains uh, than what it would it used to be a couple of years ago, like 10 or, or, or 15 years. Uh, if you have in mind every wine that you have tasted from the 2000 to 2010, uh, it would be... In your palate, you, you will resemble, you know, like overripe, scorched and sun-kissed grapes. And that's outside of the box today because uh, the manage, the vineyard management have uh, reached, you know, like a very high skills condition. Uh, so that's why whenever you read something about Argentina, luminosity is important. Uh, cool areas are very important. And then you have the soils that we didn't say anything about that. And that would be my last nerdy thing. But <laughs> you have to think that whenever you are in very extreme conditions for the grape, like this high radiation and these cool climate conditions, the soils can be, you know, like a buffer area for each grape. So you can have, you can push the 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 limits of the cool area or you can moderate it whenever you are just in, for example, clay soils or, uh, or loam, sandy loam ones. So producers are fitting each style into their own plot of soils and they're working very uh, high skilled in each case to to find the specific uh, terrar approach to its style. So I think it's it's one of the most interesting moments to have uh, uh, terrar driven wines from Argentina. I, I, I definitely do remember soils impact a lot more. That's like one yeah. of my, I would say that that would be one of my shortcomings when it comes to wine knowledge. I regularly forget the impact <laughs> of soil on wine. We'll yeah, have to you, take you, you out into some vineyards to taste some dirt, Maroki. That's all the cool kids are doing that. That's true. Everyone's chewing on a rock these days. <laughs> uh, what, what can, you actually gave us kind of a, a nice segue towards the, the end of that. We've talked a little bit. Like This was a very nerdy interview. So the listeners, we apologize that we went right off the chain but these are the questions but these are the things you that ask me now the questions well i mean that's it there's like maroki and i uh maroki and, and and i these are the things that we think about when we get together and talk about wine <laughs> so and this is what happens when they unchain us from the radio we suddenly just, yeah like, we just go, go completely right off the deep end but you know what what can i leave this i leave this to you like what do you see as the the future of argentinian wines and i know like like i said i think my big takeaway from the interview speaking with you is that Argentinian wines are not one thing. And it's one thing where I have the maps of Burgundy up in my dining room because it's a region that's very special to me. But um, I promised you that the next bottle of Argentinian wine I pick up, I will pull out a map to make sure that I'm being mindful of where the fruit is coming from. Because that is one way to learn about what a place tastes like. But for you, big picture, what do you see as the future of Argentinian wines? I think that Argentina is fighting to develop, you know, like more precise uh, and teasing wines, and that's happening. And uh, maybe you you wouldn't have to be a very nerdy person to realize that you can have uh, uh, juicy and, and elegant, fine-grained tannins, very tart in the palate, 
Malbec, for example, compared to what you have in the past. But the reason why it's this wine is so uh, different to what you have in your mind, that, would, that can be explained as a terroir thing. But at the end of the road, what I think it's going to be uh, important in the next, uh, in the upcoming years, is that Argentina can offer new styles and be more sexy in terms of of, of what producers can achieve. So there's so there, there's always going to be a wine to discover in Argentina, and there's a reason for that. And uh, I think it is linked to our um, our way of being, you know, because. We, we, we tend to be very creative in Argentina because we need to survive to struggling one, uh, once in 10 years. Uh, so producers tend to be very creative, not only in wine, but in many things. So one of the key is uh, that uh, creativeness in, in Argentina is going to push uh, the wines further. So today, maybe the, the, the most recent to find in different wines is terroir, uh and it's uh, different conditions. But at the end, it's all the interpretation of producers which are looking for and trying to, to, to fight uh, with the new ideas and find them how to deal with these conditions. So I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, upcoming year, specifically in, in terms of the next decade, because producers are, are developing new, very interesting tools. And uh, that link it to terroir would be, you know, like an explosion of, of different flavors. So I think it's going to be very interesting. I love that. And uh, for those of you who are listening in and are Ontario based, it looks like from now until November 4th, there's going to be a lot of promos on wines of Argentina, including like 60 in-store tastings. So if you want a chance to be tasting a little bit of Argentinian wine before you buy and really dive deep into the terroir and the region and take a look at the label and see where the wine is coming from. Now's your chance. Joaquin, I've got to put one last question to you that's not wine related because I realize you didn't answer it last episode when we were talking about Asada. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> For you, is it oh, Marad- no. Maradona or Messi? Uh, <laughs> I think truly, deeply in my heart that Messi, it's 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 better player than it was Maradona, <laughs> but there's only there's there's a beautiful answer for that. Uh, Maradona made his own career in five years, and Messi's been there for twenty. So it has more opportunities, but it's as as talented as Maradona was. Thank you so much for giving us the time and for uh, giving <laughs> us great answers to all these questions. I'll see you in Argentina, hopefully in the future. Okay, uh, the invitation for an asado is still on. Huh? See you in the future. Yes. Bye-bye. My new obsession is going to be to learn all about asado. Um, the concept of cooking a turkey that style, I think it's something I already do on the smoker. And just trying to figure out like where the parallels are between you know, American barbecue and Argentinian asado. I'm uh, excited at the... Uh, debating about all the topics that are forbidden at the dinner table, like religion and politics <laughs> and money. I, I'm i very much the kind of person where I think everyone can have, um, I guess, like open conversation about everything and still yeah. be able to respect each other at the end of it. But I recognize <laughs> that not everyone is like me. I like I was taught at a young age to always talk about money um, and to be really conscientious about money, but have a conversation about it. And 
it got it kind of like got me into a lot of hot water with conversations with friends when I was got over because I was like always the person's like yeah tell me how much you're making or like how much you're spending on stuff and we can all like talk about personal finances together and they're like no <laughs> it's like oh whoops so I don't know I kind of dig that about Asada that you can just have open conversations about anything and anybody and I don't know uh, punch <laughs> each other verbally in the face about your favorite about your favorite soccer player which I did put a poll out this yeah, week who, and who Messi, won who won was it Maradona Messi or Messi it was Messi with a landslide <laughs> with a landslide <laughs> so uh, I, I also learned a lot because obviously my partner Eric is a lot more into sports than I am. So he kind of was like giving me the rationale behind everything. Well, there we go. Um, yeah. So as we're wrapping up here, um, I guess just one last thing we wanted to touch on, you know, as much as I'm disappointed that summer is gone, the thing I love about fall, especially fall outside of Toronto, like in the in the peripheries, there are a lot of amazing events that are actually worth like if you want to get out and the traffic in Toronto feels like it keeps getting worse. So you've actually been really great. And you put together a list, uh, Maroki, of some events taking place out of town. And I'm going to go so far as to spike the football and say these are events that if you really want to enjoy them to the fullest, book a hotel room, spend a weekend in some of these places, and like just get out of Toronto and experience, experience the rest of this province and the amazingness it has to offer at this time of year. Absolutely. And uh, one of the reasons why I would also suggest booking a hotel room is because at least two of the events I suggested involve uh, booze. Yay! And, um, yes! It's a scary time of year. <laughs> I'm all here for the booze. Wait. Well, that boo- oh, booze. Oh, oh, that's a pun. I don't know if you even meant that on purpose. Did you mean that on purpose? I, I did make it mean it on booze? purpose. I did mean it on purpose. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh my God. Okay. The puns are beginning to already enter tasting together the podcast edition. But, um, I would always say don't drink and drive. And if you're going to indulge, you might as well book a hotel room and then you get a chance to kind of like experience the city the next day in a different way. So, um, as most of you know, if you've been listening to tasting together before on the radio waves, I'm originally from Kitchener Waterloo and we are known to have the second largest Oktoberfest in the world next to Munich. Yeah, I have yeah. been there. I was You've been there. To Oktoberfest or Kitchener? I've been to Oktoberfest. Uh, I actually Ooh. went there with a bunch of exchange students from France back in 2008, and we lost one of the Frenchmen. He reappeared <gasps> at the very end of the night, but we were there. We were drinking beer. We got to see, what is it, Miss Oktoberfest? Like, yes. Uh, and we were just like, where did Francois go? And we found him taking a nap in the bushes out front of one of the venues where it was taking oh place and God. scooped him up and brought him home. So Oktoberfest is a festival of beer, but drink responsibly. Don't take a nap in a bush. No, don't drink. Yeah, don't don't take a nap in a bush. And um, what's really cool is like, obviously, it's not just the drinks. There's the food. There's the culture. There's the games. Yeah. Um, there it like. Um, Kitchener is home to a lot of festivals, uh, festivals. I, uh, apologies. My German isn't all that good despite growing up there. And there's a lot of the more traditional ones. Like there's the big ones that sometimes happen at the auditorium. I don't know if it's happening at the auditorium anymore, but they used to have like the really big ones. That's mostly just for a party. But if you go to Hubertus House or the Schwaben Club or Concordia Club, those are the, more traditional German festivals and you not only get like to eat 
like schnitzel and 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 sausages and re- like pretzels. You get to indulge in the food, and they usually have like fun games that are happening as well. So on top of the beer, you got you get a chance to just sort of like immerse yourself in the culture. Um, Hubertus House actually is really close to where I used to live in Mannheim. I didn't even live in Kitchener proper. I lived sort of in the suburbs, and I, I remember one year we went there when the daytime activities were already over. Um, and we were just sitting there as like polka music is playing in the background because it was all empty and, but they were still cleaning up and they said, well, you know, we still have a lot of sauerkraut and, and schnitzel left. If you want to pay us a few bucks, you can just hang out while we clean up. And it was kind of great. Um, the, the sauerkraut is warm and delicious and honestly, probably some of the best sauerkraut I've ever had in my life. So it goes on till the end of this weekend. So you can always check out Oktoberfest.ca which is the official Oktoberfest website to check out what events are happening there. And then another event that is happening this weekend on the 14th is happening at um, Niagara-on-the-Lake. Wineries of Niagara-on-the-Lake is having a great event where you can essentially um, experience a walk-around tasting. It's called Dig Into Our Roots. Dig Our Roots, sorry. And they have two uh, walk-around events. They have one from 1 to 4 p.m., on the Saturday, October 14th. And then they have one from 6 to 9 p.m. And it's happening at the Niagara-on-the-Lake Museum. And you essentially get to just taste from 21 wineries from Niagara-on-the-Lake. Yep. If it's been a while since you visited Niagara-on-the-Lake, there is a bit of a renaissance happening there that I've been really like proud to see taking place because I know early on in, in my writing career, like having started writing about wines in 2010, Niagara-on-the-Lake had almost become a little passe, uh, you know, a lot of the larger wineries where, you know, you would take bus tours down there and a lot of people were really focused on Prince Edward County and on the bench side. But I think especially over the past five years, there's been a really cool renaissance starting to take place in Niagara-on-the-Lake. So if you haven't been in a while, definitely go revisit. Okay, sure. Okay, rolling. I can agree with that. And I will say that if you enjoy fuller body reds, I know we were talking a little bit uh, uh, earlier about Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot. I find that Niagara on the Lake is one of the regions that can handle taking those uh, bigger reds to full ripeness. I'd agree with that. Yeah. So um, I will bring it back to the GTA for one final experience. And this is just like a quick highlights list, right, folks? Like, if you're looking for things to do, there's going to be so many fall experiences and Halloween experiences rolling all the way to the end of the month. Um, but Riverdale Farm is doing a boo barn. So that's the <laughs> boo, like, that's the boo part of the booze. The non-alcoholic booze. <laughs> yeah, non-alcoholic the ghost booze, booze. Family-friendly event. <laughs> the ghost booze. Um, October 21st and 22nd um, at the farm, it is... Free, I believe, with a suggested donation of $5 and a non-perishable food item. And if you're looking, so if you're looking for more details on that, go to RiverdaleFarmToronto.ca. I really like farm animals. I like the fact that Toronto East End has a little farm that people can go and experience in the city. Me too. I mean, there's nothing contentious about this. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's tasting together for this week. Yes, it is. And uh, if you're looking at it's tuning in the right word in a podcast format. No, you say subscribe. Make sure you subscribe subscribe. to this show. Leave us a review. Leave us a rating. Tell your friends. Tell your children. Tell your mothers. We'd love love Uh, to hear what you think. And as always, you can follow us. Follow me on social media at Andre Weinerby and follow Maroki on social media at 9 Ounces, please. 
Yes. And uh, till next time, I guess the next one will drop in two weeks from now. And if you have cool things that you think we need to be talking about, make sure you slide into our DMs or, uh, yeah, shoot us a message, I guess, or leave a review with your comment on what we need to cover next. And we will do our best to do so.